Right, we do Mark's Gospel tonight. Um, we'll be able to rattle through it at a, a fair old rate. It's, it's, it's fairly short. Um, <clears throat> and of course some of it is, you know, sort of like repetitive and we've already done Matthew in detail. So obviously as we come to do subsequent Gospels, there'll be a sense in which I'll skip over, uh, you know, sort of some things, just mentioning them very briefly, because I'll have mentioned them, you know, in more detail in previous studies when they've been in, uh, in Gospels that, that precede them. Um, but uh, before we actually move on to Mark, um, because it's not going to take that long, we'll do some general stuff about the Gospels first, to give you the broader picture. Um, and, uh, and indeed, what we'll start to do tonight, and, and after we've finished all the Gospels, I'll do one talk in which we do it in detail, but it's to build up a picture of the chronology of Jesus' life, so that we, we start to see which, which bits happened when and, and where, so to, to build up, you know, sort of a general picture of the chronology of the Gospels. Um, now, obviously, in doing the Old Testament, we saw there that the Old Testament was a book about the people, the Jews. The New Testament is a book about a person. It's, it's purely about Jesus. Um, and we have his life and ministry recorded in four Gospels. Gospel means good news. Um, but obviously, it's not standard biography. It's not like buying a biography of Winston Churchill or, or someone like that. The Gospels, they're, what you, they're snapshots of the things that mattered most. They're what you might call biographical thumbnail sketches. And because we've got four Gospels written by four different people, therefore each Gospel is from a different angle and a different, you know, sort of like outlook. Um, if you put all the Gospels together, then you get a larger picture of Jesus. Um, but it's still, at the end of the day, a thumbnail sketch. It's still snapshots of his life. Um, indeed, the very last verse of John's Gospel says this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. So obviously there's no question of the Gospels being a biography in the standard sense, but they're, as I say, a thumbnail sketch of what matters. Um, now because there are four Gospels, each was from a slightly different angle, a different perspective. Matthew, we saw in the last two talks, that was to the Jews. Matthew was, you know, sort of like the tax collector, a Jew himself, and he was writing specifically to the Jews, and the book of Matthew was all about proving that Jesus was the Messiah, the expected Jewish anointed one. Mark, as we're going to see tonight, um, was written probably with the Romans in mind, um, and it, it, it homes in on, on Jesus's power and his miracles. It, it's actions, not words, and we'll see that as we proceed through it tonight. Uh, Luke, which we move on to next time, was written to the Greeks, um, and Luke, the only Gentile writer um, of, the news, of the entire Bible. Every book in the Bible was written by a Jew, except Luke and Acts, both written by Luke. He was a Gentile. Written to the Greeks, and homing in, bringing out there the humanity of Jesus, his servanthood, and his perfection. 
because that was what would have spoken to the Greeks. And then last but not least, John's Gospel, which was written to everyone. I mean, it was just an open gospel for anyone who wanted to read it, homing in on, on Jesus as God become man. And uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. Uh, the word synoptic coming from two Greek words, optic, which means seeing, and uh, sun, which means together with. And, um, and because they're similar in approach, it's where we get the word synonymous. And uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke, their general approach is fairly much the same. So they're known as the synoptic gospels, whereas John's gospel is entirely different. I mean, John writes in a totally different way, homing in on aspects of Jesus' teaching that Matthew, Mark and Luke don't touch at all. So John really giving us a, a, an, an angle on Jesus that the other three didn't. Now, what I want to do just quickly now is to just start to build up a rough chronology of the events of Jesus's life. This is a very, very undetailed one. We'll be doing this in more detail um, in later talks. But, uh, you know, just, just the kind of right from the start to the finish very quickly. Now, in Jesus's birth, this is what comes first, obviously, covered by Matthew and Luke. And uh, the actual birth in Bethlehem, you get the shepherds, then you have the presentation of Jesus in the temple at eight days old, and that was when he was circumcised. And uh, that bit was recorded by Luke. Then we move forward a year or so, and you have the visit of the wise men, uh, point Jesus probably one year, 18 months old, around that time. And you have the flight to Egypt when you know, the angel warns them to, to go to Egypt. And then eventually they come back when Herod was dead and they came back to Israel. But rather than settling where they used to live, they head up north and settle in Nazareth. And then the next incident we get in regards to Jesus's childhood was um, Luke records a visit to the temple that Jesus made with his parents when he was 12 years old. So that's kind of like the rough, that, that's all you get of Jesus's childhood. Basically his birth, what happened when he was around 18 months, two years old, and then this visit to the temple um, when he was a boy, and that we'll move on to and see next time when we do Luke. Then the Gospels skip right on, you know, 28 years, well no not 28, because there's the one bit when he was 12 years old, but moves right on until Jesus was 30, and uh, the actual <coughs> ministry that he um, set out on. And uh, you have his baptism by John the Baptist, the 40 days and 40 nights being tested in the wilderness. From there, Jesus spends a year traveling around and preaching in Judea. Now, Judea, that was the south of the land, Jerusalem, Bethany, Jericho, what was the old southern kingdom. And uh, so for a year, he's moving around in that area. Um, plus a visit over to Samaria, which is only recorded in John's Gospel. All right, Samaria was kind of like the border bit where the northern kingdom met the southern kingdom. All right, and that trip to Samaria is only recorded by John, and we'll see it when we come on to that gospel. So we have a year, Jesus' first year of ministry in the south. Okay, 
Um, then, for the next two years, he heads up north, and we have the Galilean ministry. Galilee, the northern kingdom, Lake Galilee, uh, Capernaum, Tiberias, these are the main, you know, sort of places mentioned. And, um, you know, to the north of Samaria, Samaria was sandwiched between the north and the south. And um, now this, this, this two years of the Galilean preaching tour uh, is covered by all four Gospels, but mostly by Matthew. And uh, from chapters 4 to 19, when we did Matthew, we were doing that two-year period of Jesus' life in Galilee. So we've got Jesus is baptised, tempted in the wilderness, all right. Then the first year in the south, and just recorded by John, trip to Samaria, just recorded by John, then the next two years in Galilee in the south. That's recorded by all four Gospels, but mostly, but the most detailed account is Matthew. Um, then after that, there's a visit to Jerusalem that is only recorded by John, right? So there's another trip that only John covers, so we'll be seeing that when we come on to John. Then you have, so, so now we're into Jesus's third and a half year now, all right? And um, for four months, the four months before he actually died, um, he was back in Judea, down south, and also he moved over into Perea. Now Perea was the bit just the, to the east of the Jordan where the Transjordan tribes had settled. So in the, the, the four months leading up to Jesus's death, he was largely in Judea, in the southern kingdom, but he also moved across the Jordan and he was um, in Perea as well. And that is recorded again by all four Gospels, but it's honed in on primarily by Luke. And, and Luke chapter 9 to 19, as we're going to see, is primarily that period of Jesus' life, that, that last four months. Um, then, after that, you have the last week of his life in Jerusalem, the crucifixion and the resurrection, obviously covered by all four Gospels. So the picture that you start to build up, all right, is that Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, concentrates on the two years that Jesus spent in Galilee, like the up north. That, that was the main bulk that Matthew gives to his Gospel. Mark's we're going to see tonight is mainly concerning um, the two-year ministry in Galilee um, up north and the last week but as we're going to see nothing is in very much detail in Mark's gospel he kind of rushes through it and I'll, I'll be saying a bit about that in a minute Luke concentrates on the four-month period when Jesus was in Judea and Perea in the months before he died um, John covers everything um, except Jesus' birth, although he does mention his pre-existence. John goes into the fact that Jesus was alive before he was born as a human being, obviously, um, but uh, John skips over the birth, nothing about that. Um, but uh, concentrates, again, mostly on the last four months of Jesus' life in the Judean and, you know, the time when he was in Judea and Korea, and then the last week. And in John's Gospel, we get a lot of detail about literally the last week. Also, John gives most detail about the appearances that Jesus made to people after he was raised again from the dead. 
Now, the, the general dates, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, all range around AD 50 to the late 60s, all right? So you've, you've got that maybe 10, 15 year period where they are. But John's Gospel was written much, much later. John's Gospel was probably written in the late AD 80s. And, uh, you know, John really, he's had his whole life looking back and on the teaching of Jesus, and, and, and that's why he's able to bring out so many things that the other Gospels didn't. Right, now get that, that's a thumbnail sketch. Uh, the chronology, we'll be coming back to that in a bit more detail, going through all the events of the where's and the when's. But um, with that like stuck in there, um, let's, let's, let's move on now and, uh, and skip through Mark's Gospel. Now, there's no internal evidence in the book who actually wrote it. But uh, from the earliest writings that we have from the early church after the time of the apostles, um, is that this, this gospel is everywhere associated with John Mark. Now, we'll meet him when we get onto the Acts of the Apostles, all right? You know, he, he worked with Paul. Um, and, but historical writings that we have that seem to be fairly uh, you know, trustworthy, um, tell us that John Mark in later years tied up very much with Peter and was with Peter um, in Rome when Peter died with, with his final imprisonment and death. And that the, the early church, the writers were unanimous in associating the fact um, that really John Mark wrote his gospel really from the words of Peter. And because John Mark spent time with Peter, um, that what we have here really is the Gospel of Peter, but written down by John Mark. I mean, hence the Gospel according to Mark. And, um, and so basically, uh, John Mark is, is, is like, it's his writing down everything Peter has told him, the picture that he, he builds up. And uh, in many ways, it has all the hallmarks of Peter. It's a rushed gospel. I mean, it, it, it helps along at a right old pace. It, 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 it goes over details and just, it goes for the action. It, it goes for the buzz. Um, it's only 16 chapters. You know, it's very, it's very short, but it's very quick. It's like Peter in every respect. It's impulsive, it's, it's action-packed. Um, and that is exactly the sort of gospel that would have been needed given that originally this would have been distributed in Rome itself, where it was written, and uh, you know, it's just the kind of intro to the Gospel that the Romans would have needed, and, and so in every way it, 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 it suits them. So let's, let's start, okay, right, from beginning chapter 1. Um, nothing about the birth, anything like that, no, no time for that. What, what did the Romans care about Jesus' birth? They, they needed to see his power. They needed to see his glory. They needed to see, you know, sort of like Jesus moving in the power of God. And um, so that, that's where, where Mark dives right in. And he opens the gospel with the ministry of John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness, um, again showing that he was the fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah, and uh, how John, John the Baptist testifies, look, someone else is coming after me and I'm not worthy to, you know, untie his sandals, etc etc and uh, but tells them that I baptize with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and um, so there there you have it immediately 
Jesus is all about baptizing in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who brings the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit to us. And so then we actually have Jesus's baptism. Again, straight into it, Jesus baptized by John. None of the chatter that the other gospels record about this, just the, you know, right, Jesus is baptized, led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by Satan. But again, no details, just the bold statement of the fact Jesus is baptized by John and he's led into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights to be tempted. Now, Mark makes no reference to the early um, time that Jesus spent in, uh, in Judea, but skips a year and straight into the two years uh, when Jesus was um, in Galilee, right up, up north. So the first year of Jesus' life after he was baptised, no mention, but straight into year two and year three. And uh, we have the, the calling of Simon, or Simon Peter, all right, Peter, Simon, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And this, this was the calling when Jesus said to them, I'll make you fishers of men. You remember they were fishing and Jesus said, follow me. And he said, look, I'll make you fishers of men. And so here we have the calling, if you like, of the four main players among the disciples. Um, then he tells us how Jesus went to Capernaum and taught in uh, the synagogue there. Again, a lot of this we've seen in Luke. Bits and pieces are unique to Mark, but sorry, in, in Matthew, but most of it we've seen before. And, um, and there was a man um, in the synagogue who had an evil spirit and Jesus cast it out. Uh, the evil spirits knew who he was, but Jesus wouldn't let them speak, wouldn't let them uh, tell the people who he was. And uh, the, the people were amazed, Mark says, at his authority. Uh, then you have the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. You remember she had a fever. And uh, from that, people from all over, you know, sort of came to Jesus and, and many were healed and many had demons cast out. And again, Mark tells us that Jesus wouldn't permit the demons to testify who he was. So when Jesus casts demons out, he silenced them. Uh, remember that uh, the Pharisaic formula for casting demons out was it depended in getting into conversation with them. Jesus didn't use that approach at all. Jesus didn't converse with demons. He, he silenced them. Um, then the next day, after this healing of, of, of Peter's mother-in-law, uh, Jesus got up really early and he was out praying in the countryside before dawn. And, um, and the disciples, and this is Simon, Peter, Andrew, James and John, um, go and find him and eventually they catch up where he is and uh, tell him that um, everyone's looking for him. They're saying, right, you know, come on Lord, that, that was great last night, all those healings, all, all that, you know, stuff. Let's, you know, and the people are, are looking for you, let's, let's go back and do some more. That's, that's kind of the thing. Um, only what Jesus did is that now he leaves that place and now he sets off to be travelling around the area of Galilee. And uh, so, you know, here are the disciples saying, you know, here, here's a real chance of fame for you, Jesus. And so Jesus moved on from that place. Jesus was never interested in drawing crowds for the sake of it. And indeed, when people were following him for the sake of it, he always discouraged them. So now we have Jesus has set off on the tour of uh, the northern kingdom. And uh, he set off from Simon Peter's house and now he's traveling for the rest of the time. Uh, then Mark 
gives us the, the story of a leper who was healed and uh, Jesus sent him to the priests. And of course, this was the messianic sign. We saw this when we did um, Matthew, uh, the fact that Israel had never seen um, a Jewish leper healed. They'd seen Gentile lepers healed, but never a Jewish leper healed. And the Pharisees had taught that this was a messianic sign, that only Messiah could heal a leper. And, um, and so therefore Jesus here is declaring um, to the Jews that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And um, again, the result of this, the, the news went out about him and he becomes highly sought after. But again, Mark tells us that after this, he, he, he tended to go to solitary places. Je there were times when Jesus was happy to be in the crowd. It was needed, but he was never needlessly in the crowd. Jesus never sought to be the centre of attention in any way at all. He was very humble. You know, he didn't want to be the big superstar in any way at all. Then on, um, in chapter 2, um, Mark tells us the story about when Jesus was in Capernaum and uh, he was teaching in a house and, and there was this guy who was a paralytic and his friends literally, they dismantled the roof of the house and they lowered him through because it was so crowded they couldn't get in. And, um, and, and Jesus forgives his sins and this sets the Pharisees murmuring, only God can forgive sins. And so to prove the point, this was when Jesus said to them, well, look, you know, what's easier uh, to, to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And, and Jesus then proceeded to heal the paralytic. And of course, this, this, this was showing the Pharisees that he had the authority to, uh, to forgive sins because he was God and he proved it with a healing. Then we have the calling of Levi, or Matthew, as he refers to himself in his own gospel. And, um, and Jesus, with the other disciples, goes back to his place for a dinner party. And of course, this, this horrified the Pharisees and the religious authorities, because of course, Matthew, Levi, was a tax collector, and he was one of the untouchables. The tax collectors were the Jews who collected taxes for the Romans, the Romans being the occupying force, and the Jews hated the Romans. And so the tax collectors were seen to be traitors to their own people, and they were grouped in with the prostitutes. And uh, so therefore, in Jesus going to Matthew's house for tea, obviously all the other people there were other tax collectors and, um, and prostitutes. And, um, and this was, you know, sort of like when Jesus says to the Pharisees, look, the, those who are healthy don't need a doctor. Uh, and he said, I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus makes it very clear to the Pharisees that the, these were the very people that he had uh, come for. Um, then Jesus is questioned as to why his disciples weren't fasting. And this was a tradition of the elders' things. This was the, not what the Old Testament taught, but these were the teachings that the Pharisees had added to the Old Testament about a million different things and various fastings were in there. And, um, and so Jesus and, uh, was, was not adhering to those traditions and, uh, and so this is put to him. And this is when he says, you, you can't put, you've got to put new wine into new wineskins. So if you put new wine into old wineskins, they'll burst. And so what he was saying, all these old traditions and that, they're no good. What God is doing cannot be contained in the traditions of men. Therefore, Jesus is saying, all that has got to go. 
what I've, I'm doing is a completely new thing. All that stuff has got to go out of the window. Then Mark builds on this, and uh, he, he puts in here the, the story of when the disciples were plucking the ears of corn on the Sabbath, which was no problem as far as the Old Testament was concerned, but did transgress numerous of these traditions of the elders. And, um, and, and, and so the Pharisees challenge, saying this is wrong that they're doing it. And this was when Jesus retorts with the incident in the Old Testament when uh, David was given the consecrated bread in the temple, which although technically he shouldn't have been, nevertheless there was no problem with the fact that he was because he genuinely needed it. And of course the point that Jesus is making, he says, look, if there's a little bit of give in the Mosaic law, how ridiculous that you've got these other laws that aren't even in the Old Testament, which are absolutely rigid. There's no giving them whatsoever. And, and, and Jesus says, look, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And of course, the point is, here they are, trying to trip him up on obscure laws about what you can and can't do on a Saturday. And, uh, and Jesus says, look, uh, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He says, look, I'm in charge of Saturday. I'm in charge of every day of the week. Saturday was, after all, the day that he finished creating the universe. And here they are, trying to trip him up on uh, some obscure laws. Then we move into chapter 3, and um, we, we have the healing of the man with the withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So we've got the Pharisees getting more and more annoyed with Jesus and uh, breaking all their Sabbath rules. And uh, now Jesus goes to the synagogue. One of the things that you weren't allowed to do, according to the tradition of the elders, was heal. No healings allowed on the Sabbath, apparently. So Jesus, spotting a man with a withered hand, heals him. And, and this, this is kind of Jesus just proving the point. When it came to traditions which weren't in the Old Testament, Jesus declared war on them. He provoked the people about them. And, and he actually went against them on, on just about every occasion that he could. And then Mark tells us that, that crowds now began to come to Jesus from all over Israel. So now his fame is really spreading. And uh, even from Tyre and Sidon. Now Tyre and Sidon, that was outside of the land, that was Gentile territory. It was, was like north of Israel to the east. So now Jesus, you know, he's got people coming from even more widely than just Israel um, to hear him. And Mark tells us, what does he do? He was withdraws to the Lake of Galilee, almost out to his country retreat line. Whenever the crowds were just coming in any way to ogle or with wrong, Jesus always withdrew, all right? The crowds always found him, but all the time Jesus was moving away from the crowds not towards the crowds. Can you see the difference? Um, and the crowds soon found him, <laughs> and uh, so Jesus did more healings, and people who had demons, he cast the demons out, and, um, and eventually managed to get into a, a little boat that, that he sent the disciples to, to prepare for him. So the only way he could escape from the crowds was to, um, you know, sort of like get in a boat and clear off somewhere. Um, then Mark gives us the appointing of the twelve disciples. So that's uh, there in the list. I won't won't go through it. We did that last time. Um, and it's at this point that uh, we have the 
the Pharisees' accusation that Jesus was being empowered by Beelzebub. Uh, Beelzebub being one of the names that Pharisaic Judaism gave to Satan. So this is, here we have the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Here we have Israel's rejection of Jesus and um, the fact that he was their Messiah. He proved it in every possible way, and yet now Israel rejects him even though they know that he was who he was claiming to be. So there you have the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Again, vitally important, but Mark glosses over it. He's not writing to Jews. It, it was just, uh, you know, it was of no great import. Whereas obviously in Matthew, there was great detail on that because it related to Israel, uh, who, uh, who Matthew was writing to. Um, and then at this point, Jesus is in a house loads of people and uh, people get word to him and say look your mother and five brothers have turned out they're outside you know like they want to see you and this was when Jesus like he, he turned to those who were following them and he said who is my mother who are my brothers and he says it's those who who do the will of God and uh, so there you have Jesus not rejecting his earthly family in any way at all earthly families are not to be rejected sometimes earthly families will reject someone who's following Jesus now, when that happens, our priority is Jesus. Jesus always comes first. And so for some people, losing family is what following Jesus means for them. Well, and here, this is Jesus saying, look, my, you know, I've got two families. There's my earthly family, but here is my spiritual family, and that's important as well. Right, then in chapter 4, um, Mark starts to pass on some of the parables, and again we saw this last time, it was after the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that Jesus started to teach in parables. And um, so here Mark tells the parable of the sower, which we, we, we did last time, so I won't go over that again. Um, he homes in on Jesus' teaching that you don't put a lamp under a bowl or a bed, you know, you, you don't light a lamp and then hide it, you, you, you shine it out, you put it on a stand. You know, the push being, you know, let your light so shine before men. That's the idea. You know, if you've got faith, it, it, it can't be hidden. Um, and then he, he tells the parable of the different stages of growth in a seed. That, that you know, if a seed is planted, you get the blade first, then, then you get the year. But it's only harvested when it's, it's full grown. And so you just get different stages of, of growth there. And of course we know for ourselves that as soon as we become a Christian, you're born again, you're a little baby, you have to grow. It's a growing, a maturing process. And then there's the parable about the mustard seed, which grows into a big tree and the birds of the air nest in all its branches. Now, a lot of that symbolism comes from Daniel. Um, and of course the point is the mustard seed is really tiny and what Jesus is, is saying here that the kingdom of God starts off really small but it ends up being a, like you know a, a, a global affair at the birds of the air often in the Old Testament represented Gentile nations and, and here are the Gentile nations making you know like the birds of the air nesting in this tree that, that the kingdom of God but from these small beginnings just one man Jesus coming that from that small start that um, you know that the, the kingdom of God would come to take in the whole world, and of course also Jesus taught as well, didn't he? And uh, John's gospel homes in on this about the seed, the seed that has to die, going to the ground and die, and uh, and of course that's what happened with Jesus. Like a seed, he died, he went into the ground, he gave his life, and from him doing that, 
this great harvest of the kingdom of God came. Um, now Mark uh, tells us of a, a time when um, uh, the disciples were in, in the boat on the lake with Jesus and a great storm comes up and uh, Jesus was asleep and he calms the storm. And uh, you know the disciples think crumbs even the wind and waves obey him. So there was a, 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 a miracle over nature. Right, chap chapter 5, and uh, we have the Gadarene demoniac. Um, Mark and Luke only mention one. Uh, Matthew tells us there were two, so it could be that it's a husband and wife, and the women didn't always get mentioned, um, you know, sort of like in, in the Bible if their husbands were mentioned. And, um, but this, this, this was the guy, you know, sort of had, was demonised to some extent. And, um, and the demons actually begged Jesus not, not to send them into the abyss or the bottomless pit or Tartarus, call it what you will, different parts of the Bible give it different names. And, um, and what Jesus does is he, he, he casts them into the herd of pigs. And, uh, you know, all these pigs rush into the lake. And of course it begs the question, didn't they? What was a herd of pigs doing in Israel? It was forbidden under the law of Moses, wasn't it? So is Jesus making a point there about their agricultural concerns? Um, so, and, and, and again, the, the gathering demoniac, who, who was, I mean, the, these two were out of their heads, they could break chains. I mean, they, they, they were well gone and uh, set free and become followers of Jesus. Um, then Jesus is called to Jairus' daughter, who, who was dying, and um, he sets off, you know, Jairus has sent for him, and, uh, you know, please come, my daughter's dying. Jesus sets off to, to go and to, um, and to see the girl, and uh, on his way there was the woman who had a hemorrhage, internal bleeding for, for 12 years, and she, she like, touched his, his clothes as he was walking by. And as, as she touched him, um, she was healed. And um, you know, and G Jesus sort of said, "Oh, who 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 touched me?" And she said, oh, "I did." And 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 he and he said, "Look, your your faith has healed you." And so just the touch, she just reached out. And um, and so then he carries on until he gets to Jairus's place, and uh, Jairus's daughter has 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 now died, and. Um, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John into the girl's bedroom, and um, and he just says, "Little girl, get up," and he raises her from the dead. And um, and remember to go back to the blasphemy against the spirit. <laughs> Matthew tells us that Mark that, that Jesus kept saying to the Jews, "Look, the only sign you're going to get now is the sign of Jonah, and the sign of Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. So the Son of Man will be in the bowels of the earth for three days." and three nights it was the sign of being raised from the dead and Jesus said that's the only sign Israel's going to get now and so this is why you keep getting these raisings from the dead because Jesus is raising people from the dead to kind of foreshadow the fact that he was going to be raised from the dead as well and that that would be the ultimate proof the ultimate sign of who he actually was and so ha having raised this little girl from the dead he, he, he tells them to, to give her something to eat which, which they duly do Chapter 6, um, Mark tells us of the time when Jesus returns to his hometown where he was raised in Nazareth and uh, this was when the people reject him and uh, Jesus said that a, a prophet is not without honour except in his own home 
uh, familiarity breeds contempt. They said, look, you know, we know your your mother, we know your brothers. I mean, you, you you can't be anything special. And so Jesus said, look, a prophet is not without honour except in his own town. Then Jesus sends the twelve disciples out. He gives them the power to preach, heal, and to cast demons out. And he says, right, now you, what I'm doing, now you go and do. And so off they go and do it. Then Mark tells us the uh, the history of the death of John the Baptist, um, how it was that John the Baptist had come to be beheaded. Um, now John the Baptist, he'd been arrested by Herod because Herod had married his brother's wife, all right? Um, and this, this, this under Jewish law was adultery. So Herod had married his brother's wife, all right? Her name was Herodias. And, um, and, and, and this should not have been. And John, John the Baptist, uh, like, would openly condemn Herod for having done that. I mean, here's Herod ruling over a part of Israel, flagrantly breaking Israel's own laws. And, um, you know, so John the Baptist has been raiding against Herod and condemning him, and Herod wanted to shut him up, so had him arrested. However, Herod did not want John the Baptist killed, because he was frightened of him as well. You know, he, he knew that God was with him. Now, what happened? Herodias hated John the Baptist even more than Herod did. Herodias was Herod's brother's wife, who married, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she she wanted John the Baptist to be killed and so what happened was there was um, a banquet that Herod was giving and all his officials and special guests were there and uh, he probably had one, one too many and, um, and, and Herodias got her daughter in and, uh, this, her, and her daughter was called Salome and this was the dance, you know, it would have been you know, probably like you know, the old belly dancing or something like that. And, and Salome is doing this belly dance for Herod, who's presumably getting more and more wide-eyed. And, and he does the old, you know, I give you anything up to half of my kingdom, you know, name it and it's yours. And so Salome has a word with mum, Herodias, and Herodias says, right, shh. And so Salome goes back and she said, well, you know you said I could have anything? And Herod said, yes. And she said, well, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And Herod couldn't go back on his word because he'd given it in public. And so that was how it was that John the Baptist came to actually be beheaded. So Mark, you know, gives us the story then of uh, the martyrdom of John the Baptist. Then we have the feeding of the 5,000. Um, I don't need to go into details about that. Um, then we have the um, occasion, uh, the story of when the disciples were out on the boat and it was a really bad storm and Jesus came to them walking on the water and um, you know to how Jesus like calm the storm now um, this other gospels tell us that this was the point when Peter walked on the water as well but that's omitted here and I mean probably because fundamentally it's his gospel now then I mean for what reason is it omitted was it because Peter was embarrassed because he sunk or was it because he didn't want to risk painting himself as being special because he was the only one who had the guts to get out of the boat? For whatever reason, that bit of the story is omitted here. And um, then after that, uh, Jesus moves down into the region of Gennesaret. Now that, that, that was the area just northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, and Mark tells us that again, that he did lots and lots of, of, of healings for people.
Right, chapter 7, um, and now back, back come the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to have another go at Jesus. And this is over hand-washing, under the tradition of the elders. Again, nothing to do with the Old Testament, but under the tradition of the elders, you, 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 you had you know, all these, these rituals that included special hand-washings, and Jesus did not adhere to it. Now, Mark actually goes into a detailed explanation about these traditions of the elders. And of course, he does that because he's writing to Gentiles. They wouldn't have known what the tradition of the elders were. Whereas Matthew doesn't. He takes it for read that everyone knows what they are because Matthew was writing to Jews. But Mark here goes into a detailed explanation of it because he's addressing Gentiles. And, um, and of course, this was when Jesus... <coughs> was saying to the Pharisees, look, it's not, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. Because they were obsessed with if you, if, you know, if you don't wash properly and, and all the cups and that, then you might end up eating something that will make you ceremonially unclean. Because they saw righteousness in terms of the external. And, and Jesus was all the time showing them that righteousness was to do with what is inside. That only God is righteous. And righteousness is a question of what goes on inside. You might not be a murderer on the outside, but if you're an angry person and if you resent people, you're a murderer on the inside. And of course, because God sees the heart and reads the heart, God, he knows what our motives are. And the motives to God are in one way as bad as the action. It's, it's better that you don't do the action, obviously, but nevertheless, the motives are as impure as the action itself. And so Jesus said, look, it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. You know, you're, you're worried about being defiled by what you put in your mouth. He says, I'm here to tell you, you are already defiled. You are sinners and you need salvation. Because the point is, the Jews kind of thought that because we're obeying all these laws and that, we're righteous, we're right with God. They didn't believe that they needed to be saved. The Pharisees taught that, um, that Abraham sat at the gate of Hades. And he's, he sat, I mean, this is in, you know, in the Old Testament, this is what the Pharisees taught that Abraham sat at the gate of Hades to snatch out any Jew who maybe accidentally got sent there, uh, the exception being tax collectors and prostitutes, obviously. And, uh, you know, so that was the Jewish outlook. And Jesus is saying, no, you're defiled already. And that's ultimately why they crucified him. They knew that Jesus was God, but the problem was he was the wrong God. He wasn't the God they wanted. They didn't want a God who was saying, you're sinners and you need to repent. They thought they were righteous. And, um, you know, so there's that clash again between Jesus and the religious leaders. Um, th then Jesus pop pops off to Tyre for a while. We saw Tyre inside earlier, didn't we? Just northwest of, um, uh, you know, northwest of the northern kingdom, up in Phoenicia. Um, and there was um, a woman there who um, needed to get her, her daughter um, set free from demons. She had a daughter who was demonised, and um, Matthew told, told the story as well. And uh, this was the woman, you know, that she said, you know, sort of Jesus set my daughter free like, and, you know, and he said, don't, don't take the children's bread and give it to the dogs, because the dogs is what the, gen the, the, the Jews called Gentiles. And, um, you know, and Jesus was like testing her faith. He was like saying, no, I'm not going to, to see if she wouldn't take no for an answer. And indeed she wouldn't. She said, yeah, but even, even the dogs get, get, get the crumbs under the master's table. And this woman, she wouldn't let, she knew that Jesus would heal her daughter because she knew who he was. And Jesus, in like saying, no, I'm not going to, 
was like almost like drawing out her faith and she said yes lord you are going to and of course that that that's what faith is and so her, her daughter was delivered of the evil spirit uh, then having been there mark tells us that jesus goes back down uh, to the uh back down to galilee by the lake and um there there's the healing of um a deaf man who was mute as well chapter eight the feeding of the four thousand <coughs> strange actually how so many people they say in the gospels there's the feeding of the five thousand there's the feeding of the four thousand they say well obviously it's the same thing but it's ended up being twice and they've got the number wrong there you've got a mistake in the bible right, it's crazy what's the problem with the fact that jesus fed a, 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 a a crowd of 5,000 on one occasion and a crowd of 4,000 on another. It's old Garth when people say it's obviously the same thing and the Gospels are getting all mixed up. It was completely different occasion. So here the, the 4,000 um, are fed. Uh, Jesus warns the disciples against the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. He chucks Herod in there, you know, the yeast, the hypocrisy. And obviously Herod is, you know, beheaded John the Baptist, so uh, G Jesus rails against, um, against him. And uh, there was an occasion when Jesus said, go tell that fox Herod. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you look today, I mean, listen to Christian radio or, you know, when you get sort of Christians on the TV, this, this, this almost phobia that Christians have got about judging anything. It's this fear. You mustn't say anything's wrong, must you? It's daft. Jesus wasn't like that. If something was wrong, he said it. He said, go tell that fox Herod. I mean, Jesus didn't bow and scrape before the important people, or mustn't say a word against they're so important. He said, go tell that fox Herod. That was Jesus' opinion of the religious, well, you know, the political leader of the day. And, um, you know, so, so Jesus, quite unlike our political correct uh, approach today. Um, then, then Jesus, having done this, when, when he fed the 5,000, there was a certain number of baskets of bread left over. And, 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 and when he fed the 4,000, there was a, another number of... And, and Jesus says to the disciples, and, 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 and he, 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 he gives them a conundrum about the numbers. You'll just have to read it, because I've never, ever understood it, and I still don't understand it. So, you know, I mean, sort of like, you know, when you get home, read Mark chapter 8, see if you can work it out. But obviously it meant something to Jesus, and it meant something to the disciples. They understood what he was meaning, but uh, I'm blowed if I do. Um, then, then Jesus goes to Bethsaida. I say then Jesus goes to Bethsaida. I mean, this isn't all the... Can you see Mark is just glossing? It's bang, 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 you see. Um, you know, so all this is happening over a period of two years. Um, they go to Bethsaida, and uh, there was a blind man there, and Jesus kind of like, you know, touches him and heals him. And the man says, I, I see men like trees walking. And uh, then Jesus touched him again, and then he could see perfectly. So a healing of a blind man there. Um, then you, you, you have Peter's confession, you know, like when Jesus said, Peter, who, who do you say that I am? And, Peter said, you're, you're, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And um, so that bit's in there. That's a, a tick for Peter. But then you remember Jesus said about, you know, sort of like, well, I've got to suffer and die. And Peter said, no, Lord, we won't allow that to happen to you. And that was when Jesus said, look, get thee behind me, Satan. And leave the thoughts of men and not God. And, um, you know, so there we see, you know, sort of like Peter getting told off for that. So he, he bunged that bit in. I mean, he didn't censor everything he did wrong, did he? Um, 
and, uh, and then Jesus goes on to, to teach about how if anyone's going to follow him that they'll have to take up the cross and, and, and be prepared to, to give up absolutely everything. Um, chapter 9, we have the transfiguration. You remember Jesus went up in the mountain and took Peter, James and John and Elijah and Moses appeared and, and Peter said, oh, I'll build houses for you all. And God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. I, Peter, shut up for a minute. You know, Peter, if in doubt, talk. That was that was Peter, and off, off, often didn't engage his brain first either, and uh, you know, so, I mean, obviously there's there's always some who can certainly identify with Peter, um, and then you remember they they on one of them incidentally, um, and then they come down from the transfiguration and the other disciples because only um, three of them were up there with Jesus were trying to cast out this demon out of this boy and they couldn't and Jesus told them off for their unbelief and he you know, he cast the demon out of out of the boy um, and then a little story where Jesus said to the disciples oh you know, they, you know the disciples were having a chat amongst themselves and Jesus said oh what are you talking about and asked them oh what's the conversation about of course Jesus actually knew because the conversation was the disciples were discussing who was the greatest amongst them. See, so Jesus said, "Oh, what's what are you talking about?" Lads? And it's this this like em embarrassed silence. Oh, well, actually, we were talking about who who was the most great amongst us. And what Jesus does is he calls a child. He, he goes and gets a child, and he says, "You know, this this is if you want to be great, you've got to be like a child." And if you want to have authority, you've got to be a servant. This was all the time. A bit that Lee read out earlier. You know, you know, the rich and the powerful, they need to be humbled. But if you're, if you're poor and powerless, then you're exalted. Because everything's upside down in the kingdom of God. If we exalt ourselves, he'll humble us. But if we humble ourselves, he'll exalt us. And uh, so if you want to be great, be a servant. You know, if you want to, to lead, be a servant. You know, and uh, that's... that's that's the way it is, and uh, so I would imagine that that was a, a conversation that probably didn't start up again after that. Um, then we have a, a, an occasion where um, the disciples saw a man who was casting demons out in, in the name of Jesus, but he wasn't one of the twelve disciples and they didn't know him. And, um, and they, they say to Jesus, oh, should, we, should we go and tell him to stop because he's not one of us? And, um, and, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. He says, look, whoever is not against us is for us. And Jesus is teaching them a big lesson here because although from the disciples' point of view, he's not one of us, the point was Jesus knew that he was one of his. Jesus knew who it was, even though the disciples didn't. And uh, any, anything exclusive, you know, you know, like amongst Christians, sometimes you get some Christians who think they're really the cut above, you know, they're the biz. No, no, I mean, there is no exclusiveness in the kingdom of God. The exclusiveness of the kingdom of God is that you can only be saved through Jesus. But once you are saved and a disciple, there's no, you know, there's no exclusivism at all. And the disciples here, what they're saying is, you know, this bloke is not one, he's not in our gang. Therefore, he can't be of the Lord. And Jesus says, no, you don't be your gang to be of me. So Jesus tells them off there for being... Um, exclusive because Jesus knew who that man was he was a genuine Christian 
He was casting demons out in the name of Jesus. It's just that he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Well, so what? I mean, Jesus was bigger than the 12 disciples, wasn't he? And even though they didn't know who he was, Jesus knew exactly who he was. Um, then, then Jesus gives some teaching about not causing little ones to sin and, and you know, the whole thing in the Bible about not causing the weaker brother to stumble. And then he gives the old, if the eye offend thee, pluck it out. And, you know, sort of like the sort of stuff that in Matthew we saw um, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, uh, there, there endeth the two-year period of Jesus being in Galilee, and um, what, what happens next is the visit to Jer there's a visit to Jerusalem now that only John records. So we'll have to wait till we get onto John's Gospel uh, before we see that. But uh, from chapter 10 onwards, we're now moving in to the four-month period um, of Jesus being in Judea and Perea. So now we're in the last months. Um, of, of Jesus's life and um, so what happens is that, that, that now Jesus go, goes across um, into Perea for a while and um, there, there uh, Mark records his teaching on divorce and remarriage that you know that you can only divorce if, if it's a question of unfaithfulness and you know sort of blah 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 um, then we we have the occasion when uh, the mums were bringing little kids to Jesus and the disciples tried to, to stop them so, get, go away you know Jesus has got more important things to do than stroke your children's head you know this was the sort of like attitude coming out and Jesus was indignant at them and he said look suffer little children come to me and he says for such you know to such belongs the kingdom of heaven and you know I mean so to that extent you know I mean obviously I, I, I mean you get a lot of child worship today in our society. I mean, Jesus is not talking about that. You know, little darlings can do no wrong and the whole of life is to revolve around children. No, certainly not. But the point is, what Jesus was showing the disciples here is that children have tremendous significance spiritually. It's very easy to think with the children, isn't it? That, oh, well, when they're older, when they've grown up, then they'll really be following Jesus. Well, no, quite the contrary. Jesus actually holds up children as an example um, of what, you know, one area. There are things that we grow out of as we grow up, and, and the innocence and the, the faith of children is something that we lose. And Jesus says, no, take children as your example. And, you know, that simple faith. Look at the way kids trust mum and dad. They just assume that everything's going to be there. Well, that's the kind of faith that we should have. And, uh, you know, so here the disciples, this rather patronising, snotty attitude towards children comes out. And Jesus says, no, 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 let them come because the kingdom of God belongs to them. And of course, this is how we know that children, we can't put a date on it, we don't know at what age that it doesn't apply anymore, but we do know that when, when children die, they are, they are saved. Now obviously, they, they grow to an age at which they have to know Jesus to be saved. But when, when, when little kids die as little kids, they go to be with the Lord. Of course, that's, that's one of the, you know, I always, I'm so glad with the, the holocaust of abortion that we have today, that, 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 that those kids, they're all with the Lord, and we'll all meet them one day. You know, so even if something as horrible and evil as abortion, there's just that, that little silver lining, at least all those little babies have gone to be with Jesus. Then Mark gives us the, the story of the, the rich young ruler, you know, the, the one who came out and said, look, Jesus, I obey all the commandments and he listed them all but he, he missed out don't covet and uh and and jesus said this 
this is what you must do. And he said, what, Lord? You know, Liga. And he said, give away everything you got to the poor. Ah, and the man went away. Couldn't, couldn't hack it. And then Jesus says, look, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get in the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't mean you can't be rich and get into the kingdom of heaven, but it means that, oh boy, the riches get in the way. Uh, they, they can be such an, a, a, a burden. They can get in the way so badly. And the Bible never says it's wrong to be rich, but always says it's wrong to want to be rich, all right? But it doesn't say it's wrong to be rich. But if you're rich, then the Bible says, make sure that you're incredibly generous and that you never depend on your riches. I mean, that's, that, that's the only way to handle prosperity. Um, then Jesus predicts his suffering and death and, and tells them how he's going to suffer and die. Um, now, James and John pipe up here and want a special place in the kingdom of heaven. It's an argument, who's going to sit his right and who's going to sit his left? And, uh, and, and, and Jesus, he, he responds to them saying, look, the Gentiles lord it over one another, but he says, look, in, in the kingdom, the greatest is the servant. So he says, right, you, you want a special place in the kingdom of heaven? You want to be great in my father's kingdom? Right, become a servant to your brothers and sisters. That's how you become great. Of course, this isn't what James and John had in mind at the time, but that is what greatness is in the kingdom of God. And this, this was where Jesus said, look, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that, that's the example. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is now in heaven and he's been given the name that is above every name and, and everything is under his feet. But he's there and that is the case because he came and he served and he died for our sins. It was because he went so low. I mean, he could not have humbled himself anymore. I mean, God becoming a man, that's humbling yourself enough. I mean, if Jesus had become the richest, most powerful man on the world, in the world, that would have still been him humbling himself. Because the richest, most powerful man in the world is nothing compared to God. So, but, but Jesus didn't become a rich, powerful man. I say that would have been humility enough. But he became a Jew. So the most, he, 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 he became a man of the most despised nation on the earth born into a poor family in this most despised nation on the earth and then proceeded to leave a, lead a life of absolute rejection and ending up being tortured and crucified as a criminal. Now that is humility. That is, it's because Jesus went so low, his servanthood knew no end. He went that low. It's because he went that low that he's been raised up now to the position he's in. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. And, and so he's saying, no, look, don't, don't, don't lord it over people. That's, the, that's not what I'm like. If you want to have a special place, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, then become a servant. Become a nobody. I mean, you're, you're special to God. Of course we are. But that's enough. We don't need to be, hey, look at me, I'm someone special. Or, no, that's, that's, that's not what it's like in following Jesus. Jesus isn't like that, and we mustn't be. Right, then uh, we have blind Bartimaeus healed and uh, Mark here says that, that this happened as Jesus and the disciples were leaving Jericho. And that's what Matthew said as well. I mentioned this last time. Luke says that Bartimaeus was hailed when 
uh, healed when Jesus and the disciples were approaching Jericho. And so this, 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 this is one of the classic contradictions in the Bible. That here you have a healing. Two Gospels say that Jesus healed him when he was leaving Jericho. One Gospel says that Jesus healed him when he was approaching Jericho. And this was one of the classic contradictions in the Bible, until archaeology revealed the fact that at the time of Jesus there were two Jerichos. One was Herod had rebuilt Jericho, he built a new one, and he was winding down the old one, and the new one was at that time in process of being populated. So there were two Jerichos, and Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus when he was leaving one on his way to the other. And that it wasn't a contradiction at all. It only seemed to be a contradiction because we lacked certain information. Well, archaeology eventually gave us that information, so it's not a contradiction, in fact. Now, there are other things in the Bible, contradictions that we can't yet explain, in the same way that once, until archaeology discovered there were two Jerichos, no one knew how to explain that apparent contradiction. But even though there are still apparent contradictions in the Bible, it's only because we haven't yet found out the missing information that will reconcile them. Maybe we never will. But it's why when you get these odd discrepancies in the Bible, it's no big deal. It just means that we haven't found out yet the answer to um, ex explain them yet. And um, right, so, so that ends there, this four years of Jesus being in, in, in Judea and Perea. Now then, chapter 11, now Mark goes into the last week. So now we have the last week of Jesus' life. And uh, in chapter 11, we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and what, you know, sort of Palm Sunday was named. I know they lay down all the palm leaves and Hosanna to the son of David and all that. And Jesus rode in on the, on the cult, uh, you know, with the donkey following behind. And of course, that was, that, that, that was a picture of a king humbling himself, uh, coming for peace. And, um, you know, that, that was, uh, you know, the ancient world understood that. At the second coming, Jesus comes on a, a white horse, and that was the sign of a king coming to declare war. And uh, because, of course, when Jesus came the first time, he came to save the world. And that offer stands. He's come to, to offer peace between us and him, to forgive us. But at the second coming, and the offer of salvation is open until the second coming. But at the second coming, he comes not to bring salvation, but to judge the world. So, so, you know, sort of like up until now, Jesus is, as it were, still on, on the cult. But at the second coming, it will be too late. He comes on his horse. And those who aren't saved, that's it. They're lost. There's, there's no more chances there. Um, then Jesus curses the fig tree, sort of zap and wilt, all right? So rather sorry-looking fig tree after he zapped it. Um, then he cleanses the temple chucks all the money changes out uh, again I've mentioned this last time but when we come on to do John's gospel we'll see that Jesus did this at the beginning of his ministry as well he actually started his ministry and ended it by chucking the money changes out of the temple they didn't get they didn't get the message the first time obviously so now he does it again and and he not not because they were money changers but they were exploiting people that was the point uh, they had to use special money in the temple and therefore you had to have money changers but they had extortionate exchange rates all the time and they were just crooks and um, so, so Jesus th throws them out but, you know, because there's, a, you know, there's nothing wrong with commerce there's nothing wrong with profit 
But when it goes mad, particularly in the name of religion, then Jesus hates it, and so he, he, he threw them out. And remember, he actually he, he made a whip. He actually got rope and he got it together, you know, packed it all together, and he overturned the tables, and uh, you know, pr presumably let them have it until they. This this isn't. It was an exceptional action for Jesus, but this isn't the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Uh, you, you know, I mean that that's quite. But that that was his anger at the hypocrisy that they were doing that in in the temple. And uh, yeah, it's funny, isn't it, today, the way that, you know, sort of like when you have these, these services, um, you know, sort of like, um, you know, sort of maybe the, the so-called gay Christian movement have their services in Canterbury Cathedral and all these so-called Christians go along to give them their blessing. I mean, what, what, what would Jesus do? Now then, gay people, anyone with sin in their hearts, if they come to Jesus wanting forgiveness, gentle Jesus, meek and mild is what they'll get. Jesus will just receive them and forgive them. But this, this was the most awful sin parading as okay religion. And Jesus hated it. And, and at these, you know, nowadays, things that the Christian churches say is blessing. I mean, blatant sin, that it's blessing and trying to say isn't sin anymore. Well, I mean, if, if Jesus was in a similar situation, it's the, the cleansing of the Canterbury Cathedral is, is, is what you'd actually get. Although you don't hear many people saying that, but uh, it is actually the case. Um, then the, the next day, um, the disciples noticed the fig tree, that it withered and died. And they said, oh, it's the fig tree that you cursed. And Jesus talked about, yes, and if you believe, if you have faith and you pray, believe that what you're praying is going to happen. Um, then the, the chief priests and the, the teachers of the law um, ask him by what authority he does these things. And you remember Jesus said, he asked them, was John's baptism from heaven or men? And of course, if they'd said, well, John's baptism was from heaven, um, then, then of course, John the Baptist testified to Jesus. And Jesus would say, well, right, so accept what I do. But if they said, oh, no, John's baptism was from men, i.e. John was deceived and not of God, well, all the, the common people believe that John was from God. And so this, this completely traps them. And so they say to Jesus, we, we can't say, we have no answer, we can't tell you. And Jesus said, right, well, I'm not prepared to tell you then by what authority I'm doing these things. And he just carried on doing them. Um, chapter 12, um, he tells the, the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. You remember the owner of the vineyard? And uh, he sends his servants to collect the produce and the workers in the vineyard kill all his servants. And eventually he sends his own son and they kill his own son. And so eventually what he does is he, 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 he destroys them, takes the vineyard away from them and gives it to other people. And of course that's one of the parables that homes in on the fact that Israel was God's own people. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, all the prophets Israel had persecuted. Now God has sent his own son and they're about to kill him. And so the vineyard was going to be taken and given to others, that the, the workers in the vineyard would be destroyed. And of course in AD 70, Israel was destroyed by the invading Roman army uh, under General Titus and um, the, the kingdom was taken away from Israel and given to the Gentile church instead. Now, in the future, Israel will be restored. They're still God's people. But this was one of the parables that, that and Mark chucks it in so that that whole thing is there in his gospel. Uh, you know, it's not of particular interest to the Romans, but he chucks it in anyway. 
So there is Israel, as it were, being cut out of the vine and, and, and the Gentile church being grafted on in its place, as Paul teaches in Romans. Then you get the uh, taxes to Caesar. They try to trap him. They say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And if he'd have said yes, they'd have said, oh, you're a Roman sympathiser. And if he'd have said no, they'd have gone to you know, the Romans and said, oh, he's a terrorist or something. So, and so Jesus took the coin, he says, Who's, whose face is on it? And they said, Caesar. And he said, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. I mean, there you have the, the word of wisdom. It was the perfect answer and it, it completely silenced them. Then the Sadducees have a crack. Now the Sadducees, they, they were like the modernists. They were like the bishops of Durham. They didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in afterlife or anything like that. And, um, and of course the Jews had a, a kind of like a tradition that if you, um, if, if a woman was married to someone and the husband died, if the husband had a brother who was available, then he would marry her to look after her, right? Now, the Sadducees say, right, okay, you've got a woman, she marries a bloke, he dies, so she marries his brother, he dies, so she marries another, blah, blah, blah. And they say, right, she's now been married to seven brothers, they're all dead, all right? In heaven, whose who's wife will she be? And these, this, these are the Sadducees trying to trip Jesus up on issues about what the afterlife is like. They didn't believe in the afterlife. And, uh, and Jesus said, well, you know, for a start, there's no marriage in heaven. In that respect, you'll be like the angels. The angels don't marry. And in our glorified life, we won't marry either. That whole thing, you know, is going to be replaced by who, who knows what. But it's, it's not going to be part of our experience. And, and he says to them, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Because, of course, if they'd known the Bible, they wouldn't have asked such a stupid question. And if they'd known the power of God, they wouldn't be like, well, we don't believe there's an afterlife. And so off go the Sadducees' tail between their legs. And um, then Jesus does the teaching on the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God and your neighbour, blah, blah, blah. Um, then he, he, he lands the old um, Psalm 110 verse 1 on them, the Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my feet, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies under your feet. And of course, now the point is, they're stumbling over the whole time that Jesus is claiming to be God. And they're saying this is blasphemy. Now, it's only blasphemy. If I said I'm God, that would be blasphemy, because I'm not. But Jesus was God, so it wasn't blasphemy when he said he was God. He was God become a man. And here are the Jews, kind of like, what, God become a man? As if this was some weird kind of... And what Jesus is doing, he's proving to them from their Old Testament that, that, that God, because they rule God is one alright but the point is God is a trinity there is one God but three persons and here in the Old Testament their, old, old te their own Old Testament in this psalm David is saying that there's the Lord and there's his Lord well who was David's Lord? Messiah so there you've got two Lords so the point is Jesus is saying look as I'm teaching as you're coming to realise that, that, that God is three persons Father, Son and Holy Spirit this shouldn't be tripping you up, because for heaven's sake, here it is in Psalm 110. David was aware of at least two persons in the Godhead, all right? And, um, and of course, it's interesting, isn't it, in Genesis, when it says, you know, in, in the beginning God created, all right? God, that Hebrew word, is in the plural, Elohim. But the verb created, bara, is in the singular. I mean, the very opening word of the Bible, you have this idea of a plurality within the Godhead, but who create and act as one person. 
Well, that, that's the Trinity. And as that unfolds through the Bible, it's there clearly. And here, Jesus is saying to them, look, this should come as no surprise to you. Even King David realised that uh, there was God the Father and God the Son. And, uh, and then Jesus warns the crowd against the teachers of the law and their hypocrisy and their greed. Because they were greedy. They loved money. I mean, elsewhere, Jesus you know, said that they loved money. And uh, indeed, they, they did. And then you have the story, nice little touch here, the story that Jesus told about the widow's mite. You know, the little old lady who comes into the temple and these other people banging all in the collection plates, all there, but they're rolling in money. So, I mean, they've got a great wad and they're chucking it in for everyone to see, but they've got wads and wads and wads more at home in the bank. It's, it's a lot of money, it's no sacrifice. And yet this widow is all the money she had and she puts it in. That's, that's generosity, that's sacrificial giving. Right, okay, chapter 13. And um, Jesus prophesies the coming destruction of the temple, which of course happened in uh, AD 70 when the Romans laid siege to it. Then you have his teachings about the sign of the times of the end, the great tribulation, the abomination of desolation, as, as it's talked of in, in Daniel, the Antichrist and everything like that, um, all, all prophesied in, 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 in Daniel. So there you get the end times teaching. Um, in chapter 14, uh, Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper and there was the woman who anointed him with expensive perfume and the, the disciples are saying, look, that could have been sold and we could have given all the money to the poor. And Jesus said, no, the, the, look, you, you'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. And he said that she was um, anointing him for burial, which of course she was. Then Judas agrees to betray Jesus to the priests. Then you have the Last Supper. So this is the Passover meal, and uh, when Jesus instituted the love feast, do this in remembrance of me, and what were they doing? Having a meal together. So that becomes the heart of the worship in the church. Um, Israel had the Passover, the church has the love feast. Both the same thing, a meal, to celebrate the freedom. For Israel, it was being brought out of Egypt. For us, we've been brought out of the world, and uh, we're in the kingdom of God. Uh, after the Last Supper, they go to the Mount of Olives. Jesus predicts the disciples will run away and desert him. Peter says he won't, but Jesus says, yeah, you'll deny me three times. Uh, then you get Gethsemane, and uh, the disciples couldn't stay awake with him. And uh, this was when Jesus is praying, take this cup away from me, but not my will but yours be done. Uh, Judas turns up with the soldiers. Uh, they arrest him, the betrayers kiss bit. Uh, the servant of the high priest here is cut off. Of course, we put all the other Gospels together and the high priest was called Malchus. It was Peter who cut his ear off and Jesus healed his ear. Um, and then Jesus is taken to the Sanhedrin, where the chief priest is. False witnesses, their stories didn't agree. Um, but nevertheless, they, you know, it's trumped up charges. They, uh, they beat him up. Jesus tells them that he is the Messiah. And so they use that as a pretext to charge him with blasphemy. Uh, at that point, Peter denies Jesus three times. He's in the courtyard. It's dawn now. And Jesus in the, uh, Peter in the courtyard denies Jesus three times and uh, broke down and wept. And of course, if we ask the question, why is it that God could use Peter so singularly, as we'll see in the Acts of the Apostles? Well, the answer is because he was so broken at his betrayal. Peter suddenly had the here more than anywhere else in his life Peter knew his own sinfulness and of course from this point onwards Peter was broken 
and that made him rely on the Lord in a way he'd never done before and that is why he could use him so much Peter was so filled with the Lord because he was so emptied of himself and so must it be for us chapter 15 I'm really hearing along now um, Jesus is taken to Pilate um, Pilate tries to get him released and Brabus um, you know sort of like um, to die in his place but, but no joy and Mark tells us that Pilate knows that the, the, the priests were jealous of Jesus and that's why they handed him over uh, Jesus is flogged and handed over for the crucifixion the soldiers mock him they put a purple robe on him the crown of thorns and he's beaten again uh, they make Simon of Cyrene carry his cross because Jesus literally hasn't the strength to carry it to the top of the hill and then they, they cast lots for his clothes then we have the crucifixion and from 12 noon till 3 p.m. there's pitch black and then we have the death of Jesus and he cries out my God my God why hast thou forsaken me then the, the curtain in the temple torn from top to bottom remember that Matthew tells us there was an earthquake as well um, that, you know the divide between God and man is gone because Jesus died the sin barrier has been removed you know so anyone who turns to Jesus is forgiven there's direct access to God now um, and then Joseph of Arimathea gets permission from Pilate to have Jesus's body and um, he, he buries it in, in his own tomb his own private tomb that was there for him when he died and the, the, the great stone is rolled across it so that uh, there's no access to the tomb and then chapter 16 and uh, Mark, Mark's account of the resurrection is as, as zappy and quick and over just like that as the rest of his gospel and uh, he just tells us that some women don't even tell us who they are uh, go, go to the tomb on the Sunday morning Jesus died on the Friday uh, the Sunday morning they go and they meet an angel who tells them that Jesus has been raised from the dead and uh, tells them to go and tell Peter and the disciples uh, to go to Galilee where he'd meet them later on and um, that's that's it then there's sort of like a bit of a postscript and uh, and then Mark tells us that um, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene first she told other people but no one no one believed her um, two, two other people were walking in the country Mark tells us and Jesus revealed himself to them now when we come to Luke we'll see who you know a couple on the Emmaus Road and we get more details about that um, and then Mark tells us that later uh, Jesus appears to the eleven and rebukes them for their unbelief because they, they were frightened, they didn't believe he was going to be raised from the dead. And, uh, and then Jesus says, look, these signs shall follow those who you believe and cast out demons, heal the sick, speak in tongues, and a long list of the signs that would accompany the preaching of the gospel. And then Mark tells us that Jesus ascended back into heaven. And, um, and then he says that the disciples from that day on preached the good news and that the Lord confirmed that it was true by the signs that accompanied the preaching of the word and basically that is we'll go into that when we eventually get to the Acts of the Apostles and um, I mean one thing we'll do in a later talk is that when we do the chronology thing we'll actually look at the the order of events we'll put you know like when Jesus rose again from the dead we'll put all the information from all the Gospels together and I'll build up the picture and show you exactly you know fitting it all together exactly what happened and because uh, just read each individual gospel and it all seems a bit sketchy 